This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In the book In Search of Bacchus, Wanderings in the World of Wine Tourism, author George M. Tabor took on the task, well, someone had to do it, of visiting a dozen of the most breathtakingly beautiful wine regions around the globe. What he came back with is a travel guide for enophiles that also serves as a primer on how and why winemakers are increasingly turning themselves into destination sites. In addition, Tabor's tour opens a window on the growing segmentation of the travel industry as a whole and offers lessons about competitive advantage and marketing that apply to all consumer-driven businesses. Uh, We are speaking today with George Tabor, who has just written a new book called In Search of Bacchus. Uh, George, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very happy to be here, McCall. You've written in the past about Californian wines and French wines, and you've written about cork. What inspired you to write about wine tourism? It really started when um, I was working actually on the cork book, and I had two experiences within a, about a two- or three-week period. The first was when I was in the Douro Valley, and I was staying up at a hotel that was associated with a, res- with a winery uh, right at the top of the valley. And when I travel, I have a terrible habit of having jet lag. And so I wake up very early in the morning and nothing to do. I go out and walk. <laughs> and so I got up at 6 o'clock one morning and I walked out. It was a beautiful morning and I looked down uh, on the valley and the river Douro below and the wines, the vines growing on the, on the hillside. And I thought, boy, this has got to be the most knockout beautiful place in the world <laughs> uh, and it must be the best example of wine tourism there is. About three weeks later, I was in on the South Island of New Zealand and had a very similar experience, also at six o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I was looking out at, 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 a, at another winery and uh, it was, again, it's just a stunning, beautiful place. And and I said, no, no, the Dura Valley wasn't the most beautiful. This is the most beautiful. Um, I came to the conclusion that they don't make wine in ugly places. It's, it's always one place is more knockout beautiful than the other. Uh, and also I was aware of the growing popularity of wine tourism. And I thought uh, somebody should put together a book that would give some of the history, uh, not a, a real guidebook, but more the what's happening in the industry, who's doing what, what are the, the kind of the top regions. So if you, if you look at it as a business, uh, how do you find wine tourism compares to other kinds of tourism like ecotourism or adventure tourism? I think they all have, share a lot of things in common and they're kind of the, the second or third or maybe even fourth generation of, of tours for people. You know, when, the, when people are young or, or before there was, uh, you know, the development of, of uh, tourism, uh, you know, you used to make the the big tour of Europe, or maybe you'd go to Paris and have a Paris specific tour. But I think now you're seeing more and more people doing tourism based on their interest, whatever their interest might be. It may be, you know, going on safaris in Africa. It might be cooking, or it, it might be ecology, or it might be nonprofits work. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I know a lot of people who take their vacations and, and work in nonprofits. So it's, I think the, the tourism market is getting more sophisticated, and it's it's probably splintering um, in a lot of ways, maybe like, like the media is splintering. How, what, what role does uh, wine tourism play 
uh, in the wine marketing business. It's huge. Um, Robert Mondavi was really the founder of modern wine tourism. Uh, he started his his winery out in California in the in the nineteen uh, late nineteen sixties, and uh, when he built it, it was with the idea of trying to attract the the tourists from San Francisco to come up to the Napa Valley. He placed the the his winery at the lowest. Or the the point on on the on the main highway there, as close to San Francisco as he could get. So this his his winery was going to be the first one they saw when they they got there. And, you know, Napa has grown a lot since then. He's no longer the first, but he he still he set the standard. And winemakers around the world, as I was researching this book, and um, you know, they all looked to Mondavi, and uh, you know, they and they looked to Mondavi as a model, uh, best practices, as it were. Uh, and then they don't always agree with everything he did, but the approach uh, was very important. And one of the keys to Mondavi's approach was education. He, in those days, used to get a free wine tasting uh, in the Napa Valley. Now they charge you a lot for the, the tasting. But uh, Mondavi would only give you the free tasting if you first took a tour of his winery and you could go through the process of how wine is made. I mean, uh, I'm glad you brought up Mondavi because uh, I think you say in your book that uh, now wine tourism is the second most, Napa Valley is the second most popular destination in California and brings 5 million people yeah. uh, the to only, the state. The only more popular tourist destination, not surprisingly, is Disneyland. Some people might say that Napa Valley is a bit like a Disneyland for adults. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the question, though, is uh, what are some of the factors driving this? Why do 5 million people uh, you know, uh, engage in wine tourism in Napa Valley every year? I'm not a psychiatrist, and I, I, my answer is maybe a little soft uh, on the edges, but there seems to be something that's almost in the human psyche that people like to go and experience the region where the wine was made, and they they create a special bond with the wine. And when I was doing the book, I, I talked to Francis Ford Coppola, the, the movie director, and he told me that, um, and he owns two wineries, one in Napa and, and one in Sonoma County. And he said, you know, that it, it's like a a, a, uh, a politician. It's like a, a voter shaking hands with a politician. Just because you shake hands, you feel you have a certain bond, and you may vote for that person just because you feel that bond. And uh, what uh, what Francis Ford Coppola told me, he said, I'm trying to create that same thing in wine and in my wineries. You uh, uh, traveled around 12 uh, destinations in researching this book. Uh, how did you choose those 12, and why just those destinations? Well, 11 of the 12 I, I chose because I thought they were the most important wine-producing areas in the country. Um, the, the 12th, I'll go into it a little bit later. Um, but I, I first decided to pick a country and then to pick a region within that country. I mean, you could write a whole book about the, the business of wine tourism in, in uh, France or Italy. I mean, it's just so widespread. Uh, but I, I felt I wanted to give it a global scope. So, I, for example, in Italy, I did just Tuscany. In the United States, I did just the Napa Valley. Uh, Bordeaux was the region for, for France. The 12th choice... I picked really because I was trying to maybe throw a little bit of a curveball into the book. 
Um, but I was intrigued with the story of Georgian wine. It was a University of Pennsylvania professor who uh, is, is the foremost authority on the archaeology of wine. And he is now convinced that wine was first made in Georgia. Um, and I thought as part of this book, it'd be interesting to go back in effect to the birthplace of wine and see what wine is like there. Also, it was a, you know, I, I knew going into it, it was going to be an unusual con- country because it is a former Soviet Republic. Uh, I was there just a couple of months before the, the Russian invasions uh, and, you know, talked to the people a lot. Uh, but um, I, I thought Georgia would add an element of that is somewhat unexpected and, um, and had that historic link. Just to go back a little bit to the two regions you mentioned, uh, uh, Italy and and, and, uh, France, Uh, how does wine tourism differ in these destinations, or is it essentially the same? It's very similar. Um, The wine... Because usually the, 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 there's a kind of a, a process that everybody goes through, all the wineries go through in, in making, uh, developing wine tourism. First, they develop their, their winery as a place to visit, which is very unusual. I mean, you know, 50, 70 years ago, uh, you know, people didn't visit wineries, so they, could, they were just basically factories and, you know... Um, but um, so that's the first step. The second step is usually if the lo- local rules allow you to do it, and interestingly enough, Napa does not allow you to do it, to associate a restaurant with it. And the benefit of that is it allows the winery to show off his wines in the best possible light. Good food and good wine are, are just a natural mix. The third uh, way to do it uh, is to establish small hotels uh, and, or almost bed and breakfast. That's very popular. And also people love it. They, they love to stay on, you know, uh, overnight in a winery. So those are the three that are kind of the starting points. But because wine tourism has become so popular, um, winemakers have to become more and more innovative. Uh, it's not good enough just to do those three elements. You, you got, you got to have a gimmick, <laughs> I mean, a gimmick in a, in a good sense. And I visited a winery a few months ago in, in Virginia, for example, it's uh, where the two owners, husband and wife are graduates of music from the university of Miami. And they're trying to combine wine and music and they have concerts there, but they also recommend their wine saying, you know, this, this wine will go very well with jazz or this wine will go with something else. You know, I, I'm not going to laugh at it, but it, it is very important because competition has, has gotten tougher. Any other examples of such innovations that you, you saw in different, the, the different places you visited? Uh, in Texas, I visited a winery and they have, they have gotten into outside co- concerts on Sunday nights. Very popular. People come in. Uh, they buy a bottle of wine. At first, they didn't, weren't providing any food, but then they found uh, a local um, food store and not a, a local restaurant that was willing to bring its truck around. And now they sell food for those that didn't want to bring their own. And you know, it's just a, they're they're always on Sunday nights, and they sometimes they get a thousand people. You know, it's very very popular. The one thing I think that's really important from the business angle about wine tourism is to realize that wine making and number of wineries has become very popular over the last 
few years. They're, they're just all over the place. They make wine in every state in the United States now. But a lot of those are new ventures that would have a difficulty surviving without wine tourism. I was talking with the leader of the New York State wine business, and he told me that they have about 250 wineries in the state of New York. He said that probably only 50 of them would survive without wine tourism because the producers can sell directly to the consumer who comes in off the street. And that's very important, especially for the small wineries who often have great difficulty getting into the distribution channels. What distinguishes uh, areas that are more successful at wine tourism than those that don't make the grade? I think the beauty of the place. I mean, it really, it it comes down to, uh, that's why... Uh, Tuscany is, was my favorite of all the twelve places I visited uh, because it, it I mean it's it's not, it's knockout beautiful, the, the the wine is is excellent, the food is excellent, and you have friendly people. You know you have to have all those kind of elements together, uh, but at the same time. You have to be concerned that you don't overdo it. You don't, you know, have, you know, wall-to-wall people. Uh, and some critics of the Napa uh, Valley development say fear that that's happening out there. It is so popular uh, that it, you you go up there on a, on a you know fall Saturday or Sunday, and it's it's just packed. It's you know it's 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 bumper to bumper up and down the valley. In South Africa, you encountered a man by the name of Charles Back, who makes a line of goat wines. Could you tell us about him? <laughs> Charles Back is, a, is, a, is, is the leader. In each chapter, I tried to identify the leader or several leaders of the, the wine tourism movement. Sometimes it, 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 uh, there was just one person, sometimes there were others. Sometimes it's the best winemaker, sometimes it's not. But uh, Charles uh, is a very creative guy. He studied uh, other markets and what, what they're doing. Uh, he also has never met a pun he didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> and so his line of wines bear names like uh, Bored Doe, <laughs> uh, The Goat Father, um, uh, Cote de Rome, Cote de Cote d'Or. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the French were quite unhappy with this, and they, they took him to court a couple of times, <laughs> but they've, uh, so far the courts haven't ruled that a pun is, a <laughs> is illegal. <laughs> uh, no, uh, but getting the, you know, the, that's, I think, in a lot of ways, is another example of this concept that you've got to differentiate yourself. You've got to come up with something. And, I mean, Charles Back, uh, you know, has differentiated himself with, uh, with, with the names of his wines and, the, and, and just the approach he has taken. And that, that's a good example, again, of innovation or gimmickry, whatever mm-hmm. you would choose to call it. Yeah. Uh, you referred earlier to the fact that a number of people looked at Mondavi as the source of inspiration. Uh, how is Argentina trying to replicate the Napa Valley's experience in its wine tourism business? And have, how is, have they succeeded in giving it a, a local flavor through yeah. its own history? Yes, very often, the, and that, that's another important factor, is that, you know, the, the, to stress the history of it. Um, I mean, the first thing that, that, that Argentina had to do was improve the quality of their wines. Um, they, their wines, until about 30 years ago, 
were again not up to standard. Uh, but there were a couple of wineries that went to, to California and also a lot of them spent time in France. Um, the one disadvantage that Argentina's got is that for right now at least, the, the wine area is very spread out there. Uh, so it, and, and that's important for the success of, of, a, of a winery in wine tourism as well. That you, um, One of the ways that a lot of wineries go in is, is have what they call wine routes, where you'll have several wineries in a short period of time so that somebody can go out and visit four or five or six uh, in a day or maybe two days. Or, uh, and in, in Mendoza, which is the, the center of wine tourism in uh, in, in Argentina, it's it it is spread out. That's a disadvantage they have. But I think they're doing a, a very good job of of uh, you know uh, stressing their what is special about them. Uh, is wine tourism in Chile different from wine tourism in Argentina? Not really. I mean, they're they're they. I guess the wine tourism as such is is very similar what's different in in chile um is that they and and argentina is they're they're concentrating on different wines um and again this is you know this is your innovation or this is a concentration promotion that you've got to do which is argentina has is very famous for the malbec grape which is actually a french grape but they the argentines today probably do a better job of growing it they have the better climate and the, the better soil for it than actually the french while uh well um chile it's the carmenere which is it's a very similar story but it's just a different style of wine both of them have a you know the latin accent to it does wine tourism in new zealand necessarily involve bungee jumping <laughs> not, not unless you're a, an author who has to uh, to get serious and he has to try everything can you tell uh, us that story <laughs> well in the book in the, in every chapter in every country i tried to have a personal experience because i was i was trying to make the book book uh, approachable to 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 readers and and they could see you know vicariously through me uh the, the Walter Mitty uh of what um is happening in that area what i maybe could be able to do so in portugal in the duro valley of portugal for example i blended wines the, the way a winemaker would do it at one of the wineries. And, and that actually, at that winery, that's one of the things that they do special to attract people to come back. Um, so, um, and, you know, there were other examples of, of, of uh, local experience that I had trying to show that. Uh, Central Otago, New, New Zealand, is the adventure capital of the world, it was in Central Otago that uh, bungee jumping actually was invented, and um, it was also um, they also. I mean, everybody in Central Otago seems to be twenty-one years old, male, uh, and is just filled with adrenaline. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, since it was the adventure capital, and I was looking for this, what I used to call my, my first-person singular story, I thought, well, why don't I do a bungee jump? <laughs> um, I'm not 
a particularly adventuresome person. I've never skydived. <laughs> I get sick. I don't get sick in elevators. <laughs> um, but I decided to, and once you're there, actually, it's a little bit easier because everybody in Central Otago bungee jumps. Some people do it, not every day, but some people do it kind of once a week. I don't think, I, well, I did talk to some people who had never done it. But, you know, it's, it's kind of part of the atmosphere. And, and so the, uh, the question a lot of people have asked me about my story of the the bungee jump was um, how much wine did I have before I took the jump? (laughs) And the answer is I was dead sober. It was 9.30 in the morning and uh, I hadn't had a a drop of wine. Of all the places you visited, uh, uh, do you have a personal favorite and why? As as a wine tourism experience, I think it's it's Tuscany for the reasons I explained before. for one that I have kind of an emotional attachment to, it was Georgia. Um, Georgia was such a, 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 a an enlightening uh, view for me, uh, and to to see the winemaking there, to meet the people, um, be, partly because they've been isolated for so many years. Um, the, the the winemaking in Georgia is unlike winemaking any place else in the world. There's nobody that makes it exactly the way they do, which is they take these big earthen jars and and bury them in the ground and then actually make the 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 uh, the, 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 the wine right in those jars. Uh, very unusual. And they uh, they have two types of wine in in New Jersey in um, in Georgia. One that they call traditional wine. That's the you know, it's the 9,000-year-old way of making wine. And then they do Western wine as well. But, and, you know, it, uh, it was very sad to see the, the invasion of the, of, of the Russians. I, I really felt that personally because I, I had been on the road that was one of the main roads that the Russians came in on. And, uh, you know, I could feel for, for those people. But they, they're great survivors. Um, one of them, I sent an email to one of them and he sent – sent me uh, back in a response and I, I sent him a sympathetic, you know, I'm sorry this happened type of message. And he sent back and said, uh, don't worry about it. Um, you know, we've been through a lot. We'll, we'll get through this one too. <laughs> uh, one last question. Where do you see the future of uh, wine tourism going? I think it's going to be growing and be more and more popular as uh, as people seek out new and interesting things and, and take specialized vacations like this. And uh, I, I think it's got a, a tremendous future. Um, that is part of the reason uh, that with this book, I've started a new website that uh, called uh, Tourism <laughs> Travel for Wine. Travel and then the, the letter, the number four, wine.com. And what we're trying to do is to create a community of people certainly around the United States, but I think we can do it around the world, who are interested in wine tourism, uh, who can come to this site and share their experiences, maybe get information. If they were going to Tuscany, for example, uh, I'm going to put a lot of the, the material from the book onto the, to the website so they can get information, do some studying before they go there. Uh, and, you know, after you've done it, you know, send the pictures. And, and I think, it, you know, I think that it's the type of thing that the Internet is so well positioned to do, to bring a community together 
that was not together before, and it, there's no problem of space or age or, or anything. It's, you know, it's just people who share a passion for wine tourism. Uh, George, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.